Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Once in a while, I'm rummaging around my metaphorical desk. And I say metaphorical because I don't really have a desk for podcasting. I actually don't have a desk in the house at all, other than the one I use for work. And that one's uh, just really a, just a desk in a room somewhere. It's not it only got some work-related stuff on it. But my podcasting notes are mainly in different places. I have some in email. I have some shared drives. I have a few other places that I keep things. So it's it's sort of the metaphorical desk. You could almost think about it as file folders on a desk somewhere. And once in a while, you rummage through them and you find something interesting. And hopefully one day I'll be able to go through a lot more of them and talk about some more things in podcasts. People give me ideas or nuggets or kernels or some information, and I try to use that when I can. But this one sort of sat for a long time. And here's the backstory. There was a guy named Lincoln who had asked me some questions about Disney. And it was sort of the spirit of Walt Disney and how Walt Disney influenced the company and sort of how they provide the best in guest entertainment and so forth. And you'll hear the questions in a minute. But I thought it was worth going back and trying to answer his questions on air because I think they're kind of interesting. And they're relevant today, especially because you're hearing a lot about the changes that the company made to uh, the dress code and how people are allowed to, uh, to be themselves in a current 21st century version of Disney. And, you know, people ask the question, what would Walt Walt think? And I think I'll give you that answer in a couple of minutes, what I believe, and you'll understand kind of my context here. Now, as far as the questions, Lincoln was actually thinking about writing a book um, about Disney and the Disney experience. I don't know if he ever did. I never saw anything about it. So my presumption is no. And I'm sorry to hear that. If you didn't get around to it, Lincoln, maybe this will give you the little push that um, maybe you need to finish it off if, you have, if you're almost done. And if you're interested in reaching out again, um, please feel free. I know you were working on some interesting things, so please feel free to reach out and thank you again for the questions. So without further ado, let's jump into the questions and talk about some of the things about the Walt Disney Company. Simple question to start. Can the Disney magic be quantified or is it deeply personal? Does everyone have their own benchmark for magic? The question is simple, but I think the answer is fairly nuanced and has a lot of depth to it. And actually the question, when you think about it, has a lot of depth too. I think early on when Walt Disney first came up with the idea for Disneyland, he had something in mind that was totally unique. He was creating a category and he had his hand guiding everything. So he was involved with it. He touched it all. He hired the, the uh, web designers who he wanted to work for him. And so everybody was kind of working from the same vision. And as he thought about the park layout and the things that were going on there, he had all these ideas for where bathrooms go to how far away garbage cans are from each other and so on. All of these things kind of go into creating a sense of magic and wonder and doing something that was unique. How clean the park was was an important thing to him. And I think 
that kind of helped guide what the magic should be. So these things made it stand out in some way. Um, because it was something new and unique, he had an opportunity to create something that he called magic. Now, as we move forward you know, a few decades, we look into it and the company, I think, tries to capture that magic. For a long time, they rested on their laurels and went with what Walt had in mind, as far as that goes. But then they started to lose the luster because the, the cost was going up and the um, expectations go up as well. And so as these expectations and costs go up, people want more. And so Disney tries to quantify it in different ways. And in fact, in their ad campaigns over the last decade or so, they talked about all these different things like, oh, you should have a magical vacation. You should do things. You should bring your kids. How about that one, you know, that last toothless smile? All these things that try to capture your family heartstring type things and make it magical in some way. But I think they struggle with it a lot because they can't figure out how to make it magical. And if you look at message boards along the way, um, you get a sense of it. You know, people say, I spend a lot and expect a lot. It's a recurring theme. And people talk about needing pixie dust and wanting to go, in quotes, home to Disney because there's a bubble and you forget about your cares and enjoy yourself. So I guess it's quantifiable to a point, but it's much less so now than it was before. So do they have their own benchmark for magic? I think they know what they want magic to be. And I think it comes down to dollars and cents and guest satisfaction. They do listen very closely to what the guests have to say. So I think they're kind of building magic around that sort of stuff. Now, moving forward past the pandemic, as an additional answer to what I sent Lincoln, I think you could make a case that they're still trying to figure out how they're going to reposition themselves heading into the future, into 2022 and beyond. What can they do to make it more quantifiable? And uh, what kinds of things can they add? In the long run, I think it's impossible to continue to meet the demands of guests. You've got more uh, vacation club properties, and that means more expectations. And if um, you have to deliver that magic consistently and meet their needs and you're, they're asking for something and you're giving it to them, at what point do you reach saturation and you realize you can't do that anymore? At what point does it become difficult to kind of hit the, hit the mark and still go beyond it? You know, if you're going to do theme park reservations and do things like that in the next generation here, uh, then you have to make sure that you're meeting expectations. And I guess that, that really comes down to it in this post-pandemic world. Whatever they do, they can kind of set the magic a little differently because they can set the bar higher. Maybe it's theme park attendance they bring down to a degree. Or maybe it's they offer more experiential type things to create magic in a different way. And if that is the case, is Disney in a quasi-losing battle in meeting those expectations? In the long run, I would argue it's impossible to continue to meet the demands of your guests. The fact that there's so much vacation club property it means that the guests are going to expect more when they come. They want more. They believe they deserve more because they're spending more. And so they have to kind of set a bar for magic that they, that they think works and make sure that they're deserve, del delivering it consistently. But I think the battle continues to get harder. And ultimately, I think they become a destination that's fun, but not the same magic factory. And again, thinking about what they do post-pandemic when it gets to 2022 and beyond, do you keep your theme park reservations, in which case you keep the theme park attendance down, in which case you can increase guest satisfaction and the experience a little more? And if you create more experiential type things where people come in and they can have a different experience while they're in the park, then perhaps you're creating something even greater for those guests and they're getting more value and view it as magic. You know, they, maybe they can define the magic to a large degree 
to keep it consistent. And I think that's an interesting thing that they could do, and we'll see if they actually go forward with it. People can pay a lot less money and go to Six Flags or Cedar Point, and it's probably even less money to go to Universal. In fact, there are plenty of amusement parks closer to most people in the U.S. than either of the Disney properties. What is the draw? I think for many people, it's a legacy type of thing. I went there as a kid. I want my kids to experience it too. Maybe you're looking at it through rose-colored glasses because you remember it a certain way, but even so, you're trying to help foster that sort of thing where you're extending the magic to your own family. And it's also about the Disney bubble. For the most part, you're removed from reality and feel safe, secure, and at home. And if I extend this into the pandemic time, just before Disney closed last year, they only added hand-washing stations and reminded people to stay safe. They were trying to keep you in that bubble and keep you away from the world. And then now, it's, they have the face masks, but they're still making it fun. I watch videos from people going and they're having a great time. Yeah, you're wearing a mask and yeah, you're staying safe, but you can still kind of remove yourself to a large degree from the world as it is today. I know people want to just extend out and continue and not have to wear a mask or do anything and be in that Disney bubble, but it's not quite that simple for a lot of reasons. But they want you to feel at home. That's why they always welcome you home when you come to a, one of the vacation club properties. That's why they always say hello to you and greet you and I always have a smile because they want you to feel like you belong in some way. Uh, I know that for me, as a former cast member and looking at cast members that I see in recent times, you know, it's always about them coming up and, you know, having a smile and a story and a something, right? Making your day special and you can interact with them in a way that kind of extends that magic too because they understand it and they get it. So I think that's the, the biggest thing. So ultimately, Disney may become more of a destination that's fun, but perhaps not, not the same magic factory, but I think they will artificially manufacture some sort of magic that keeps everyone happy. You mentioned in one of your podcasts that you had some fellow cast members who resigned once they had seen the backstage side of Disney. You touched on their thoughts during the podcast. Can you expand on that? I rather like this question. Now first, it's, a, it's an amazing place to work and you're helping make the magic for people. And that's kind of a, there's something special about that. It's kind of wonderful in a way. I used to tell people that cast members really are the magic. And I think that's still true today. Uh, but still, at the end of the day, it's a job. There's some physical nature to it. The hours are long and you see things that are less than magical. Characters out of character, trash piles in the backstage areas, whatever it might be, there are things that are not as nice and you know, guest welcoming in the same sense. And not everyone sees that. So you see it, but you have to kind of keep it to yourself and share it with your other cast members. And I guess that's sort of like it's why, a why it's like a fraternity in a way, because you're sharing it among other people like you who are in the same position you're in. Now, there's one specific story that comes to mind. There was a young lady on the college program who worked with me for a short time when I was in the Emporium. She was delighted to be a part of, the, of a great cast. She was happy to be at Disney. She loved Disney. And she was getting college credit for this, so there was a win on pretty much every front. It ticked all her boxes. It was cool. But as the weeks passed, she came to realize it was just a job at the end of the day. And being the magic, putting a smile on when you feel crappy, and dealing with whatever things people bring to you, rather than experiencing the magic, was tough for her. So she dropped out of the program. She wanted to live in the bubble for periods of time as a guest, but not to experience it as a cast member. And I totally get that. And it comes back to me once in a while when I think about great customer service experiences. It's hard to be on that side of the table 
and giving that great experience and always smiling. It's, I give so much credit to all the cast members for really living the magic and being that. You are the magic. You are the reason that this works. As I said in a previous answer, when you think about going to the parks, one of the great things is interacting with cast members. If you're nice to them, they're nice back. If you ask questions of them, sometimes they're silly questions, they'll be silly back. And you just can have these great rapports because everyone's there to have a good time. And they know that. They're working a job and they're having some fun with it. I always try to stop and talk to cast members. Doesn't matter who they are, what they're doing, whatever. I like to just stop and talk to them. It's great fun and I really enjoy it. So it's one of those things that I think is really important to keep in mind as you think about how to deal with uh, cast members and what the magic comes from. So it's important. And when you look at uh, somebody who decides that they need to leave because it's not, the magic isn't there for them, you realize that happens. There's, it's not for everyone. Not everyone can do that job. And that's okay. Is fragile the right word to describe some people's perception of the magic? I think that's probably fair. As a cast member, once you see inside, you don't think of it in quite the same way. For some people, it's like leaving childhood. For others, it's about a growing experience and learning new things. As a guest, you have to kind of consider the fact that you're inside this bubble, but things can still go wrong. I had an incident one time where my mom was, we were at um, Disney, uh, Disney Springs, uh, it, was called, it was still called the Disney Village Marketplace. My mom had her purse stolen. We're in the Disney bubble. We're having a nice time and her purse gets stolen. It changed the magic completely at that moment in time. It was something that, that kind of took away from it doesn't mean that the next time we went up or even the next day, no, I think that was the last day of that trip, but the next time we went up that we didn't have a good time and we weren't in the magic because we were, but it's still in the back of your mind in some way. It happened. We had to deal with the sheriff's department and deal with, you know, filing the police report and whatever and replacing all the, you know, stuff that was in her purse. You know, things happen sometimes that take you out of your element and it's unfortunate, but that's the way the world is. And you have to kind of realize that the magic is very fragile. There's a kind of a, a thin gray line, if you will, that you can kind of dance back and forth across that makes magic and doesn't make magic. Hey, the cast members were great. You know, and the, the sheriff's department that came and talked to us, they were great. Everybody was really nice. And I think they even gave my mom like a comped meal or something just because, you know, you had the inconvenience. Let's make your day better. And it was, it was a nice thing to do. It was a trivial thing, but it was a nice thing. And I still remember them doing something nice. And, uh, it's not, you know, it's not something that I really dwell on or think about, and I'm sure she doesn't either, but it's one of those things that you kind of keep in the back of your mind, and you go, the, the magic is very fragile, and it's easy for something to go wrong. Usually doesn't, but when it does, how do you react to it? How do you react? How do the cast members react? And what happens afterwards? Did the magic wear off for you during your time as a cast member? The short answer is no. But it's more complicated than that. My view of the magic evolved. I would suspect it's like working as an extra in a movie set. It's all glitz and glamour until you get to a long production day with lots of waiting around. Then you see people working and it gives you a perspective of just how hard it is to make a movie. It's the same thing. You're on set. You're, they tell you you're on stage when you go out there and you're a cast member. And these are all your guests and you're in a role and you're starring in this role. So you have to put the smile on and you have to stand there and do it. And once you realize how to do it, it becomes part of you. You become, you become this actor in this movie. And it's hard to throw that away. It's hard to turn that off. I still feel that when I go in the parks that I feel like I was part of the magic. Now they're part of the magic. And they're, I'm going to help them to help me to make the magic, if that makes any sense at all. Because that's what it's all about. It's about this circle. And uh, it works really well. And I think it's kind of cool, actually. 
If it didn't wear off, did you mature in how you look at the magic? You come to appreciate your part. It's a big show and you're on stage. You get to have fun and interact as much as you want to. And you have a brotherhood or fraternity of people who have been there too. I've made some friendships there and I keep in touch with a few people. I joined some social groups and always feel welcome no matter what era people worked in or their location or their job. It's like, you know, you, knew, you know the secret Disney handshake and you can do it with anyone who worked there at some point. It's sort of like that. I know there's really no Disney handshake, but it's the principle of that, that you have this fraternity, this group of people that you, that you, you have this relationship with and you can really uh, look back on it and reflect on it. They under, understand and appreciate it too. And that's what makes it really cool. And that's why I still have it on my resume that I was a cast member at Disney for some period of time, because it really does like make it a talking point. It's something that I want to sell about myself. Yeah, it was many years ago, but that doesn't matter. So you come to understand what it takes to keep the magic alive. And I still think the real magic is in the cast. Barring that, as you have watched the company resort grow and morph over the years, what have you seen? What's changed for better or worse? The company has changed many times. You had the direct Walt-inspired years, the rudderless decade or so where the company was losing large sums of money and had no real vision other than to continue Walt's vision. Then you had the Eisner era that brought it, the company back and made it an empire. Then you have today where it seems more like a profit-driven company where shareholders matter more than paying customers, at least to a point, maybe not entirely. And over that span, they've grown a lot. There's some goods and some bads, there's still a focus on entertainment, but with the constant push for these vacation club properties and the sales pitch that you see with all these vacation club properties, these DVC signs up and somebody's willing to talk to you about it and take you to an ice cream social and try to sell you on the relative merits of it, of having you know, this great family vacation for 40 years, there's, it's, it, it, you, have to, you have to kind of balance that. Um, you, have to, you, you simply must come and enjoy and spend lots of money is what it feels like they're telling you, though of course that's not what it is. It's no longer a semi-affordable short vacation that you can go to. Now it's an expensive proposition that requires more planning, longer stays, and there's goods and bads that go with that. The problem here is that at some point they, they're gonna reach saturation and everyone will expect more. And if they're gonna do the ex experiential thing where they're going to you know, like let people come in and have an experience where they're part of something rather than doing you know, kind of a park day where they just go in and wander through the park, you're changing the paradigm, and that might be good, but at what point do you have to show more again? From your perspective, what were, are, guests looking for after they're walking through the gates? I'm sure the ticket prices and vacation stress are already in play, but do guests set the bar even higher before they arrive on Main Street? This is where the Disney bubble comes into play. They want to leave reality behind and enter a world that reminds them of their childhood, fun, and easier times. They don't want to worry, just have some quality family time and have some fun. Disney markets this well between the ad campaigns, planning DVDs and videos online now, and assorted promotional materials. So there's an expectation going in and people want to have that warm and special feeling, or dare I say that pixie dust when they get there. And it's important to kind of keep that in mind because your expectation is already set when you get there. You've heard from friends, they've already told you what it's like, you've seen the videos, You've read the message boards, you know what you're expecting. And if you're an Uber planner, you've already done all your fast passes and whatever, or at least you would have in the past, in the future, I guess you will too. So you would have already put that together. So you have an expectation for how it's gonna go. You've got all your meals planned, you know what you're gonna do, you have a budget. You know, you're kind of going into it with an expectation. And if it doesn't meet that expectation, then what? You know, so now I've got to set the bar higher. So this experiential thing again, I keep talking about that, 
it's going to raise the bar again. You know, as I have to do this, I want to have the, you know, I want to have the mountain day. I want to have the roller coaster day. I want to have the Star Wars day. Whatever it's going to be that I can have as an experience will fit into this. But then the expectation is really high at that point. There are Disney fans, Disney fanatics, and then there are those who get married at Disney World, are veteran Disney cruisers, decorate with Disney, live, eat, and sleep Disney. Why do people build an entire life around Disney? I find it to be almost a cult, and I mean that in a, a fun sort of way. I don't mean that in, in a negative way at all. It's almost weird, though. Um, I'm a fan, and I enjoy it, but I've seen it at its worst. But I'm a realist, and I see that it's still a profit-minded company, so all of those things for me is what makes it work for me. But other people see it differently, and they see it as something that's just this magical thing, this, this realm, this you know, almost fantasy world, if you will, fantasy land, if you will, that's something different. So why do they build a life around it? I assume it's because it makes them feel good and remember the fun times. It's kind of like the holidays. There's always this special place that's warm and cozy. Uh, you know, we have what now what amounts to a Christmas creep. You know, Christmas is on December 25th and it used to extend back a little bit further into mid-December. Then it was to Thanksgiving. And now it's into, into early November and you start to see decorations and good cheer taking over. And that's great. But it's kind of weird when you see it because it's this, this creep that kind of goes out from what Christmas is into something else. And this really isn't any different. Uh, people want that vacation, that no stress moment other than, you know, stressing to get to their next thing. But they don't want to have to worry about anything. They just want to be able to go to their hotel, have a good time, go to the pool, go to the theme parks, whatever they're going to do and just enjoy themselves. And at the moment, one arrives at the airport and never has to lift a finger until the time that they go back to the airport. There's transportation, food, entertainment, always something to do and keep you amused. And there's something to be said for that. So I think people want to capture that spirit of the magic and hold on to it because it's special and you feel special. And the cast members, again, make you feel special. I think that's really what it comes down to. They're making you feel really good about things. Look, we know that the Magical Express is going to be going away and people are complaining about that. You know, it's like because it's such an amazing thing that brings you to the magic. And I don't think people ever considered the fact that the drivers of the uh, buses are not Disney cast members. They work for Mirrors, but they wear a name tag and they're wearing, you know, costumes. So they might just as well be Disney uh, cast members in that sense. But it's that interesting thing that people see it as something that's a really positive thing and part of their whole experience. And that's why it kind of warms up to them and it kind of meets them uh, with, a, with a special place for them. On a similar note, I found a website that offers recipes from parks and the one that sells candles that replicate the smell of the Polynesian Resort. I just remember the smell of the water in the lobby, but why do people want to recreate the Disney experience at home? Conversely, are people trying to recreate Disney or just trying to recreate the emotions from being there? I think it's just the emotion of it. You want to hang on to it. Disney is masterful at creating the immersive experience. The smells, the sights, and the sounds are all part of the equation. People use that sensory stimulus to keep it going. Heck, I remember going to a building once and the whoosh of the air and the smell of it reminded me of what is now the Shades of Green Hotel smelled like when I walked into it. And I was taken back and transported to another place. And it was the weirdest thing, but that sense of smell is really important. I make my own um, popcorn at home with a little bit of the uh, flavor call and uh, a little bit of the uh, salt. And the smell of the popcorn popping reminds me of like walking in past uh, the popcorn cart on Main Street. 
You can do the same, say the same thing for cinnamon rolls baking. A lot of times you can think of Main Street. And there's other smells and sights that you see that make you think of Disney. And I think that's part of it. Uh, I think you know, what you're seeing is people come up with these ideas for things that they remember uh, as part of their reaction to it, whether it was the sight, the smell, or the sound. And they hear it and they think about it. The tram going through the parking lot, the old tram with its, its particular sound of the horn, the um, sound of the whoosh of the monorail going through the contemporary. These are things you can relate to, right? You, you know what it sounds like. You know, the sound of the water uh, going over the waterfall at, uh, at Splash Mountain. You know what that sounds like. You know what some of the smells are. The smell of the Polynesian that, that you mentioned. That's something that's recognizable. You know what it is. So all of those things kind of fit together to kind of help recreate your emotion of being there. And I think there is a, a strong reaction. You remember being there with your parents and having a fun time and it was a good family time. You know, in the days before the internet or before we had, you know, cell phones that we carried around with us, you went with your parents and you had a great time. And now you kind of want to recreate that with your kids. And yeah, we all have phones now, but you can still recreate that moment to a degree. And when you smell something that brings you back to that moment, it's special. Is there a similarity between the energy that drives Trekkies or Trekkers and hardcore Disney fans? Both offer an escape from reality and offer an optimistic vision of the future or the present? Oh, I'm gonna say yes, definitely. As you noted, escape from reality and the humdrum of everyday life is part of the equation. Trekkies or Trekkers, people who enjoy the Star Trek franchise, they go to these conventions, they dress up, they're a part of it. I remember many years ago, probably when I was in high school, we had an occasion where uh, there was a couple of different Star Trek conventions, events that came to a local, local area where I, where I lived. And um, I met Gene Roddenberry, and I met Leonard Nimoy. And, you know, they were, in, they were interesting. They're just people. They were actors and a director, and, you know, they, they make these shows. But it was interesting to see them in real life and see who they were and get a sense of who they are. And the interesting thing was, we're sitting in the crowd, and the questions that would come up were so specific. Um, I remember distinctly one person asking Gene Roddenberry a question about... Um, on the blueprints that I got from this particular source, whatever, it shows that the view screen is at a 45 degree angle. And yet um, when, you, when you stop the, freeze the screen at home and you measure it, it's clearly a 43 degree angle. Why the difference? You know, people get so passionate about it that they get hung up in the mi most minor details because it's part of who they are. People come to uh, these Star Trek conventions dressed as their favorite characters. That's remarkable to me. I could never do that. I would never do that. But some people do. And I more power to them if they do. You know, if that's something you like, then go for it. You know, there's another piece to this puzzle, too. The extension of reality is, is really something. For Trekkies, that often means listening to the faux science jargon and imagining the possibilities. You know, I could create a warp engine. And you hear about in reality today, someone's talking about the possibility of some sort of warp drive engine. Hey, man, it was, it was sort of, you know, it was uh, fantasy science becoming real science. Um, for Disney fans, that means seeing new technology in action. You're seeing something happening. You know, here's this latest technology. The Magic Band is an amazing piece of technology with this RFID. The, um, the uh, Disney apps that they use are really pretty remarkable with what they do, too. And there's a lot of other technology that's always being evolved. You think about the early audio animatronics and what they did there. They created these basically moving uh, automatons, these robots. And now they've looked very lifelike. They've evolved the technology where it fools you. And they, and they have these things that they do. The Haunted Mansion with the, with the way they have Madame Leota talking to you. And it looks like she's actually there in that, in that sphere. It's amazing. And of course, at Disney, you're always being edutained. 
educated and entertained at the same time. I was just listening to your interview with Christy Schoonover-Peterson, and I got started on this quest after listening to the f fictional Reddit stories about Disney, which feature everything from satanic rituals and mutated lab experiments, running amok in the parks to human trafficking. What, in your estimation, causes people to inject the macabre into the happiest place on Earth? It's weird, isn't it? There are people who talk about the dark side of Disney and doing somewhat unsavory things or look at things that are macabre. In the happiest place on Earth, that just seems out of place. I guess for some people it's a different version of an escape, or perhaps it's just because it's the happiest place they find some weird sense of accomplishment and not really spoiling it, but sort of twisting it in a way uh, and making it different. You know, some people, people make fun of like, uh, this, it's a small world all the time because it's such this upbeat, happy, silly thing that it gets annoying. And so some people turn it into something that's a little more twisted and jaded, right? Or people talk about um, drug use or sex at Disney and all these things that happen. And you think about those and you realize, you know, people, people twist it because they're taking the happiest uh, thing and turning it. And it could be because they had a bad experience when they were, went there as a child. It could just be because they've got a deeper, darker sense about them. I don't know. But it's interesting to hear people's perspectives and get these different things. Weird question, to what degree does Florida play in the Disney appeal? The state does have a popular appeal. Growing up in Ohio, I looked forward to going to Disney in part because it was warmer than Ohio in the winter, and there were palm trees, something Ohio lacks. Florida has always been known as the vacation destination. In the 50s, East Coasters made it all the way down to Miami Beach, and there was also acts performing in the big hotels because that was the place to be. It was warm during the wintertime, and they would get you know, all these different people to come into town and, and play there. So Florida made sense in many ways because it was warm and it was beaches and, you know, people could hobnob and have some fun. I do wonder what would have happened if Walt had selected St. Louis as a possible destination for his next Disney park. I think he would have eventually come to Florida anyway. It just might have been his third stop instead of his second stop. Now, the location does matter more now that they have a cruise line because there's more reason to come to Florida. You have that tie-in. You go to the cruise line, you go to the parks, you do whatever. I think the warm weather does have an impact. But I don't know that it's uh, in, you know, it completely intentional. I think it just worked out well for Disney to have it that way. Um, I think the fact that his uh, parents had bought a place in a town that no longer exists about maybe 50 miles north of where he uh, bought his property in Orlando or near Orlando uh, might make a difference too because you know he had that special connection to it in some way. So there's probably some of that there too. I'm sure you've read the comments on various websites and there is one that comes up over and over again. Walt must be rolling over in his grave. Sometimes it is in reaction to the price hikes over the years, but it usually comes up in reference to adult themes or the issue of homosexuality, think Beauty and the Beast, or the occasional dust up over gay days. Hence the question, does Disney react to culture or is it the reverse? For that matter, would Walt be rolling over in his grave? And now we get to that question, the one that, what would Walt do, dot, dot, dot. Walt had a vision that really no one could fully appreciate. Not his brother, not the people he was close to. Very few could understand his way of thinking or his specific plans. He was a true visionary in that sense. So for anyone to say they believe Walt would be rolling over in his grave, I don't think they understand who Walt was. They see the theme parks built to his liking, but he wasn't done and had other ideas that never came to pass. 
We don't know what all of those were. We don't know what he was thinking. We couldn't possibly understand it at this point. So it's impossible to assume that a deviating from that vision is contrary to his thoughts. How would we ever know? So it's an interesting problem we have because, like I said, nobody around him really knew what his vision was. He had these ideas for other things he was going to build, other things he was going to do. We don't know exactly what those were. We can't even say exactly what Apcot would have been in his vision. He had something in mind, but no one can articulate what it was. Walt always had these things he did where he was thinking about social issues, uh, thinking about um, how to stay current in, uh, in the world of politics. He was very savvy with these things. So when it came to the days of the McCarthy hearings or anti-Semitism, it's not that he felt a certain way one way or the other. I think he had a very um, impassioned responses that were very nuanced to fit whatever the thing was. He had very strong views on things in life, but he didn't always tell you about those because it was part of who he was. He wanted, he wanted to keep that mystery alive a little bit. You saw this person on TV in the wonderful world of Disney, and he was interesting, but you didn't know that much about his, all his beliefs. You heard about things about him, but you didn't know everything about him. It's not like the, today's YouTubers where you know everything about them. By the way, I still hear people saying that Walt is frozen somewhere, possibly at Disney World. Don't really know. I don't know what the, uh, what the story is there, uh, but he's not. And he's, uh, he's actually uh, buried in, uh, in California. And, but people want to believe that. Or I guess it makes it easier to connect to him and his vision if you think he can be brought back to life tomorrow or in the future. Um, I don't hear as much about that in recent years, but I had heard that for a long time. And you know, I guess it makes it easier to connect in some way and think that maybe he could come back. Now, Disney, the company, is very sensitive to media reactions. You know, they always push the envelope on social issues. Uh, you know, Disney roll, has rolled with social growth over, over the years, and uh, it gets harder over time. Um, but I honestly think people overreact to things. Gay days are tacitly accepted by Disney, but Disney do, does not promote them. But neither did they say yay or nay to other gatherings. What if Christian groups who come in and wear shirts proclaiming their faith and holding prayer moments? Is that any different, really? I mean, they tacitly approve of those, too. With Beauty and the Beast, I thought Disney did a masterful job of getting more press for the movie without spending a dime. People talked about it because of a perceived issue that never was stated in the movie. So while Disney monitors Twitter, reads some blogs, listens to podcasts, goes out there and uh, listens to what people have to say, they also use social media to their advantage to get something back. So it's a give and take for them, and I think they're really smart about the way they handle it. Man takes his family to Six Flags and a roller coaster is closed. He shrugs and says, oh well, let's go ride something else. Take that same man, put him in Disney World, and close the Haunted Mansion or Pirates of the Caribbean. Veins will throb, coronaries will be had, and complaints will be lodged. What's the difference? On the surface, there's no difference. They're both amusement park rides, but people become Clark Griswold at Wally World when things don't go their way at Disney. Hey, sorry folks, park's closed, moose outside, should have told you. Um, I suppose it's because of the distance, the cost, and the expectation that people have that they lose it along the way. It goes back to what I said earlier too, that it's an ever-increasing expectation. To counter it, at least a little, long rehabs for rides are announced well in advance, and when it's unexpected, it's up to the cast members to make that guest happy in the moment whether that's through a little trinket, another fast pass, or just a smile, it makes it up to the cast member, again, being that magic, 
making sure that that customer, that guest, is happy. I found a site that lists complaints against Walt Disney World. Not official complaints, just a general gripe board. What surprised me was the responses to the complaints. Granted, some of the snarky responses may have been just the usual kinds of statements that are bred in the petri dish of the internet, but I was really surprised at how vocal Walt Disney World defenders seem to be. Companies would sell their children for that kind of brand loyalty. What has Disney done to create that kind of devotion? As I noted before, Disney fans are kind of a cult. Again, not a bad way. They just love Disney and can't see Disney doing any wrong. That's something I simply can't explain, and it permeates through society. People form a strong opinion about something and simply can't or won't back down. Doesn't matter what others see, they see it through that lens. One of the things I loved about working there was there was this fact that it's a business where people are there to have fun. Yeah, there are complaints, but many of them are trivial. My food was cold, you didn't have a shirt in my size, or the ride was closed. Some are more meaningful, but to be honest, they aren't all that frequent. And that's the biggest part of the business. Disney takes the complaints seriously and works toward guest satisfaction. They actively survey people before, during, and after their visits to gauge their expectation and what they experienced. They follow people on social media. They have the moms panel that answers guest queries and tracks the kinds of things people want to know, handled by volunteers who are just regular folks. Genius. They have a well-established brand that they worked hard to maintain. I heard a story once from someone with inside knowledge. As Disney tried to create a rewards program that they worked to try and make something meaningful, one big name was interested and negotiated, but decided that Disney's demands were too great likely that they would be less profitable uh, than they wanted, so they dropped out. Disney is recognized around the world and has an amazing brand loyalty, so the story goes that perhaps they've made a mistake in losing the potential business. And such a story isn't that hard to believe when you think about it. I see a great deal of complaints about the discount resorts on property, and to a lesser extent, some of the complaints about the luxury resorts. If we are honest with ourselves, we get what we pay for. Motel 6 isn't the Four Seasons, and Pop Century Resort isn't the Polynesian. But people expect Four Seasons treatment when they walk onto the property. What drives the expectation that no matter where you stay on property, you deserve a flawless experience? Has Disney created that expectation, and is that expectation unreasonable? Disney has created the expectation themselves, and it's wholly unachievable. But because they created it, it's on them. Guests should expect rather a lot. Personally, I prefer to stay off property at a decent hotel for less money than to stay at a value resort. It's trading off a little of the magic for comfort. But if you're not driving, you can fly in and take the Magical Express as soon as you land and enter that bubble immediately. Sure, the hotel may be just okay, but you're paying for the experience, so does it matter? The problem is the quality versus price. Is $150 or so for a night for a value resort and $400 for a deluxe. Is it worth it? Would you pay that for hotels in other cities? I should also mention the Vacation Club. The rooms are probably closer to their deluxe and their amenities, but the expense is even higher overall and there's no mousekeeping. But yet people keep coming back for more because they own a little slice of the magic. It gives them a sense that they'll be back regularly. Disney seems to exceed the industry benchmarks, and that just amazes me in terms of the number of uh, units that they sell. To what degree does Disney take us back to our childhood, the childhood we think we had, or the childhood we wish we had? We probably all remember the trips we took to Disney as a kid, and they're probably nothing like we remember them. But we met Mickey and we had a picture with him. We rode Space Mountain and it was terrific. So we romanticized that, and we try to recapture it or we try to capture it with our own kids. You've worked there and have had many trips to the parks over the years. 
What is it about the place that fosters such a strong emotion, either positive or negative? My brother and I have talked about this a bit. We did a lot of trips over the years for school and with the family. And some were better than others, but we remembered it as something fun overall. I realized that not all of them were what they quite were cracked up to be. But even on the bad days, they were memorable because we shared that experience. And because in a relative sense, some things there don't change, I can remember doing so-and-so there and be at that same spot. So it's funny, I have these two very vivid memories of going to Disney. One when, when I was in early high school and I went with my family and I had my, uh, my brother and my three cousins were charged to me to be able to go and go around the park. They let my, our parents let us just go and have fun, but I was sort of supposed to keep an eye on the other four because I was the oldest. And one of my cousins wandered off and we couldn't find him. And, you know, there was this panicky moment and I met up with my parents and his parents and we talked about it and it was like, oh, we can't find him anywhere. And then, you know, my aunt saw him, he was riding Dumbo and he was like waving at her, just, you know, goofy smile, just waving at her. And it just, that sticks with me because I was charged with the responsibility there. And I failed in that responsibility and I felt really bad. And I still have that memory of how I felt because I was having so much fun. And yet he just went off on his own and he was having fun on his own. There was really no danger or anything bad. It was just one of those things that sort of played out. And I remember it very differently uh, than um, being something totally positive. But yet it all was, it was totally good. And if I talk to my brother or my cousins or my aunts and uncles, they'll remember it completely differently. In fact, they do remember it completely differently when I talk to them. So it's kind of funny when I think about it that those are the kinds of things that you kind of keep in mind. The other one was on my uh, grad night when I was in high school. And, you know, I, I've, I've talked about this before. We were a group of guys that went out together. And um, there were four of us, and we met up with three girls. So I was the odd guy out, and I was on my own for most of the night. And I have a vivid recollection of that night. It was my first time solo in Disney. And it was weirdly wonderful, though at the time... I didn't think it was. I couldn't quite appreciate what it was to be alone and solo in Disney. And I look back on that and I go, but why did I have that feeling? Because my friends abandoned me? Because, you know, something else happened? I don't know. I had a great time. No question about it. I had so much fun. It was just a different experience than I think I was anticipating. And so that kind of fits in there. Um, it, it brings out strong emotions when I think about it. And I think about you know, when I go to the parks today, I think about one of the places I sat and I was kind of, you know, meditating about the world a little bit. And it's just funny to think about. Anyway. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my one little spark segment today, I wanted to talk about the Academy Awards for a second. And actually, before I get into the main topic here, I wanted to point out that Disney won a couple of Academy Awards for the movie Soul. And essentially, it's about a jazz musician who dies and goes into the afterlife. And it's a very deep storyline. And really, Pixar is very good at picking up on the depth of those stories. And generally speaking, they, they work for a kid at a certain level too but they work for adults. And this one leans much heavily and skews much more heavily toward adults. And it's really kind of interesting that way. And it deserved the awards it got, though, you know, sort of the subject matter is intriguing in its own way. Um, so I sat there and I watched the Academy Awards and then Tyler Perry got up and won the Humanitarian Award. And I thought his speech was spot on. It's kind of the things that I talk about throughout this one little spark segment. 
So with due respect to Tyler Perry, I wanted to play for you his entire speech that he gave at the Academy Awards. You know, when I set out to help someone, uh, it is my intention to do just that. I'm not trying to do anything other than meet somebody at their humanity. Like, uh, case in point, this one time, I remember I was, maybe it was about 17 years ago, I rented this building and we were using it for production. And I was walking to my car one day and I see this woman coming up out of the corner of my eye and I say, mm, she's homeless, let me give her some money. Judgment, I wish I had time to talk about judgment. Anyway, I reach in my pocket and I'm about to give her the money. She says, excuse me, sir, do you have any shoes? It stopped me cold because I remember being homeless and having one pair of shoes and they were bent over at the heels. So I was like, yeah. So I took her into, into the studio. She was hesitant to go in, but we went in. We go to wardrobe and there are all these boxes and everything around the walls and fabrics and cracks of clothes. So we ended up having to stand in the middle of the floor. So as we're standing there, we, I, wardrobe, we find some shoes, we help her put them on. I stand up, I'm waiting for her to look up. And all this time she's looking down. She finally looks up, she's got tears in her eyes. She said, thank you, Jesus. My feet are off the ground. In that moment, I, I just I, I recall her saying to me, I thought you would hate me for asking. I'm like, how can I hate you when I used to be you? How can I hate you when I had a mother who grew up in a Jim Crow South in Louisiana, a rural Louisiana, right across the border from Mississippi, who at nine or 10 years old was grieving the death of Emmett Till. As she got a little bit older, she was grieving the death of the civil rights boys and the, the little girls who were in the bombing in Alabama. She grieved all, this, all these years. And I remember being a little boy and coming home and she was at home like, what are you doing at home? You're supposed to be at work. She was in tears that day. She said there was a bomb threat and she couldn't believe that someone wanted to blow up this place where she worked where she took care of all these toddlers it was the Jewish Community Center my mother taught me to refuse hate she taught me to refuse blanket judgment and in this time and with uh, all of the internet and social media and algorithms and everything that wants us to think a certain way the 24-hour news cycle it is my hope that all of us would teach our kids and not only to remember just refuse hate don't hate anybody I, I refuse to hate someone because they are Mexican or because they are black or white or LBGTQ. I refuse to hate someone because they are a police officer. I refuse to hate someone because they are Asian. I would hope that we would refuse hate. And I want to take this Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award and dedicate it to anyone who wants to stand in the middle no matter what's around the walls, stand in the middle, because that's where healing happens. That's where conversation happens. That's where change happens. It happens in the middle. So anyone who wants to meet me in the middle to refuse hate, to refuse blanket judgment, and to help lift someone's feet off the ground, this one is for you too. God bless you and thank you, Academy. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that is my podcast for this week. And I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. 
There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.